Chapter 2 The Hardship Two Years Later Leah sat with her cheek against the glass cross-legged on the floor. The halfpenny bridge humped its back under the feet of tourists and junkies and beleaguered dubs, heads down against the rain. The lamps were lit and the moon rose in the eastern sky. Traffic rumbled up and down the quays. By streetlight, every vagrant had her brother's face. The river swelled with a toxic tide. There were fish in there, enormous whiskered creatures that thrived on raw sewage. They were air breathers, mutant cousins of catfish, grown to the size of a human child. Their skins were slimy and they had no scales. They climbed out the river at night to graze the gutters with questing barbels. Some said that the walking catfish videos were fake, but Leah had seen them from her window, perambulating on pectoral fins. They looked like giant, tentacled slugs. There had been other fish in the Liffey, before the set of circumstances collectively known as the hardship. She'd seen an otter catch one once, right under the bridge, while the city carried on regardless. People stumbled by, clutching disposable coffee cups and talking into their phones. Nobody looked down. They didn't tend to look up either, but she kept the lights away from the windows all the same. The bookshop was closed for the night, the cafe emptied out, and she was alone in the building, four floors up. The taxman didn't know she was living there, neither did the bailiff, and both had been taking an interest in her affairs. Leah wrapped a rug around her shoulders. She loved every brick of the place, but the windows had sold it to her, three of them, arched from the ceiling to the floor. Her phone was on silent, but she could see a call coming through. She ignored it. The caller tried again. No caller ID. The caller kept on trying. She shielded the phone with her hand and answered in her best work voice. Lawless design. May I speak to Leah Lawless? It was a male voice, post-American. This is Leah, Ethan Blake. Leah stared at her phone in disbelief. Technically, Ethan Blake was her client. But he wasn't someone that you actually talked to. His directions were relayed through minions, the kind of people who thought they were important because they once went jogging with him in L.A. Ethan Blake was at the top of the food chain, and she was plankton, or krill. Look out your window. She looked out. There were teenagers drinking between the temporary dwellings on the boardwalk, and people selling drugs, and bicycles weaving through streams of automated cars. A homeless boy sat on the crest of the bridge, with a sleeping bag over his knees and a paper cup for change. Beside him, a hand waved from between the umbrellas. I have sushi, said Ethan Blake. Then his phone cut out. Phones did that on the bridge. Nobody knew why. She let him in through the bookshop door and discovered that billionaires are just like ordinary people. They get wet in the rain. He handed her a paper bag at the point of disintegration as the lift clanked upward. It was strong enough for ten men to drink in for the weekend, but it took its time. She had the top floor to herself, bare brick, metal girders, unpolished warehouse floorboards punctuated by the pillars that held the roof in place. Maybe, she thought, this was like the warehouse apartments of post-American cities, but the phrase supposed a little more in the way of intervention, walls, a bathroom, 
a bed. Leah had none of these. She called it the leave-no-trace principle of interior design. Given a health and safety inspection, or any other natural disaster, she could be out of there in half an hour. Unless the cafe was busy, the building took its temperature from the outside world. For cold nights there was a stove, pipe surreptitiously inserted through a hole in the roof. It created a small hemisphere of intense heat, into which she ushered the soggy billionaire. He paused, taking in the contrast between the enclave of comfort around the stove and the starkness of the rest of the room. It looked, he thought, like a scene from an arthouse movie. There was hardly anything there. The only colour was in the network of girders, the columns that supported them and the window frames, painted the strong industrial green of a former century. The paint was old, peeling in places to show rust-coloured undercoat beneath. Firelight and candles cast shadows on the bare brick walls, making a pool of light around a low table with kneeling cushions beside the stove. There was a faint smell of beeswax that reminded him of a church. It was like an abstract painting, he thought. At first the colours look random, and then it catches you, unawares, with its powerful, subtle, almost invisible design. An article in Wallpaper magazine had once described Ronan as the house whisperer. Now, in this haunting and transitory space, it seemed to Ethan Blake that Leah Lawless had a touch of her brother's magic. This is art, he said at length. You're an artist. The room had wanted to remain bare, and Leah had listened. Years of imposing layers of luxury on unwilling rooms, owned by rich clients, had taught her that. Some industrial buildings want to become houses. The designer's job is to facilitate the transfer. But this one saw itself as a warehouse, and no amount of decoration would have changed its mind. It was as wedded to its own industrial history as she was to the notion of a quick getaway. Now, the room had gathered some expressive power that she couldn't put into words, layers of beauty and sadness and overwhelming loss. She sometimes wondered if it was emotionally healthy to love buildings more than people, but she did. They were vulnerable, they needed her, and there was very little risk that they would love her back. Would you like me to dry your shoes? There was a segment of industrial felt around the stove on which he stood to remove his trainers. Leah stuffed them with newspaper and placed them at a practice distance from the stove. There was a kitchen of sorts by the back window, a bottle gas hob designed for camping and a sink on wheels connected to a hose. The bucket underneath had multiple uses. Leah opened the paper bag that he had given her, unwrapping styrofoam boxes and a ceramic sake bottle, its wide cork waxed in place. She arranged the food with the delicacy that it warranted. It was top-notch sushi. She hadn't seen the like since Tokyo. And Ethan Blake was on her hearthrug, drying his hair on her towel. He was wearing black jeans and a black t-shirt, with that unnaturally clean look that made her wonder if Californians washed their clothes at all. Maybe they just bought new ones. Then she caught a whiff of deodorant, upmarket but unmistakable, and his glamour slipped. For a moment, he was just a forty-something bloke in wet socks. He shook his head, short dark hair standing up in spikes, and the famous charisma was back. 
She couldn't see him anymore, just the face that had been on the cover of Time magazine. They had called him the master of spin. Ethan Blake had Irish heritage, which was not something he'd been allowed to forget. His other parent was from Osaka. I wonder if the Japanese are as keen to own him as we are. With Asian cheekbones and blue Irish eyes, Ethan Blake was so handsome that it hardly seemed fair, and the photographs hadn't done him justice. He was almost as tall as she was, with the kind of muscle definition that comes from an obsessive workout routine and an overall sheen that bore witness to food no longer available in mainstream shops. Ethan Blake knelt politely at the low table. It was surrounded by cushions, made of the same brown industrial felt as the sleeping pod that dangled from the roof beams like a spider's nest. He lifted his cup for her to pour, handling it as though he knew it was precious. Leah's sake cups had been made by a master craftsman who lived in the mountains above Kobe. They were small, brown and unobtrusive, and had cost her a week's wages, back when she was earning proper money. I apologise for intruding on your evening, said Ethan Blake. They told me at the office that if I wanted to meet you, I had to go down to the river and bring some fish. But I think they were jerking around. He smiled. It looked as if he was stretching scar tissue. Leah was no stranger to anxiety. She just didn't expect to find it in deities. I'd have come into the office. His visit, she assumed, was the consequence of something dreadful that she'd done, although she wasn't sure exactly what. Encouraged by a tax regime that was nothing short of bribery, Soul Traders Global HQ had relocated to Dublin. It was housed in a former cigarette factory, an Art Deco building recently refurbished with an interior by lawless design. This contract was the sole reason that Leah remained in the relative comfort of her own home and not down on the bridge with a paper cup. But, looking back on the project, she could think of countless ways in which she'd overstretched the brief. Maybe the beehives were a step too far? The beehives are awesome. We have the best environmental ratings in the country. How about the sleep capsules? I slept off my jet lag in one of them. So you're not going to sue me? This time it was a proper laugh, showing designer teeth. No, he said. I'm not going to sue you. I came to see you because I have a project in mind. I thought that you might be the right person for the job. Now that I've seen where you live, I know you're that person. He paused for effect. I want you to design my family home. In San Francisco? Given the ongoing investigation into the debts incurred by Lola's design, she wasn't sure that she'd be in a position to travel. He refilled her cup with a formality that came straight from Japan. I have a house in County Limerick. It's called Carmoyle.